Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibbyverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Liz Scher is the author of Never Simple, a memoir. 
She's now a product developer living in Washington, D.C. with her husband, two small children, and an ill-behaved cat. Never Simple is her first book, and she's working on her second. This book is so good, by the way. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Never Simple, a memoir. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I was starting to tell you before we recorded that as soon as this book came in, I was like, I want to stop everything and read this. Like, this is a book that if I were in a bookstore, I, this is like 100% like the book I would pick up. You know, this is like right. And then it did not disappoint in the slightest. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I actually listened to the whole thing, which I didn't think I would, but I did. And so every back and forth to my kids' school was you walking with me. So thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. I thought the narrator did an amazing job. Amy Landon is just such a talent. She did. Was that a debate, by the way? Did you consider narrating yourself or you were like, no thanks? Or No. So I used to work for an audiobook publisher back in the day. And I think one of the main lessons I took away from that is that just because you can write does not mean you can perform. And okay. I certainly knew that to be true about myself. And uh, this was definitely a job for a professional. Got it. Well, she did a great job. It was it was really wonderful. Well, for, for those who are not familiar with Never Simple, could you explain a little bit about your memoir? And I read, was it on your website somewhere where you said you took a break and decided you wanted to write, but you decided not to write about your mom. And then two years later, it was like all about your mom. So, <laughs> let me hear that whole story. Absolutely. So the memoir begins on a particular otherwise uneventful day when I was 18, when my mother came into the room to drop two bombshells. Number one, she had been married most of my life to a man I had never heard of. And number two, that my father, the man she had told me was my father, was a complete fiction. She'd totally made him up. Fake story, fake pictures, fake name, fake everything. And the memoir kind of unspools from there my journey to find out who this man actually was and what else that had been going on in my house growing up was completely fictional. And yeah, so I, I sat down to write this story uh, when I came back from maternity leave with my second child. And my kids are 14 months apart because my husband and I are not so bright. And so <laughs> I had a, two kids under a year and a half at home. And so the only time that I had free was this sort of magical hour of lunchtime when I had both childcare and nobody like tugging at my sleeve, needing anything either at home or at work. So two days a week, I went to the gym and three days a week, I sat down to work on this writing project. And it took two years because that's not a lot of time. But I think the lesson there for me was that incremental work really adds up and that you can make something good out of small work. Not to mention that two years is not a particularly long time to be working on a memoir. You know, like, I don't feel like that's out of the normal realm. So it's not. It was I think it was overall it was easier than I thought to get that work done. You know, a lot of things that people told me about having kids and becoming a mother were turned out not to be so terribly true. But one thing that was absolutely true was that you learn to prioritize really quickly because your time is so limited that you have to make time for the things that matter to you. Yeah. Give a busy person something to do, right? Exactly. Goes, boom, 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 boom. I know. I'm like, just put it on the stack, right? Exactly. <laughs> like the machine, the machine is on. Just, you know, it's like one more copy from a busy copy machine. It makes no difference really in the long run. Tell me a little bit about how you wrote it, like those consecutive days or non-consecutive days rather, where you were working on it. And then the final structure in terms of timeline. I'm always so interested in where do you start? How do you, what is chronological? What isn't? Like, how did you decided on the timeline and all of that. Yeah, so I, I sat down to write it in, you know, spoiler alert, what would be the last year of my mother's life when she was insecurely housed and I was spending, you know, hours every week talking to lawyers and the police and caseworkers and, and whomever she'd, she'd run afoul of at that moment. 
And so at first it was just sort of somewhere to put all the like fear and concern and love and rage and everything that comes into taking care of an elderly mentally ill parent. And so the first parts of it were all around that. And the second half of the book is really about that kind of care scenario. And then she died a year into the project. And I looked up and I had half a book, I had 50,000 words. And I thought, wow, this is not, you know, this is not a, a therapy project after all. This is this could really be something and maybe be something that would help other people in similar positions. So I took that section of the book and thought, what do you need to know to make mm -hmm. this make sense? What do you need to know about her life to know how someone, you know, starts as one of the first women lawyers working in New York and ends up, you know, about to lose your apartment? And so the, the book progressed along those lines of how to make this a story that that hung together. I loved how you sort of did a little detective work along the way to try to figure things out once you got that news. Yeah. And you were like, well, how were we surviving here on the Upper East Side? <laughs> you know, how was all this working when she when she wasn't working? Where was the money coming from? And all your deep dives and setbacks and mm -hmm. like the disappointing call with the sister. And, mm. uh, you know, I just, so I, I kept like rooting for some, you know, ugh, like every, at every step, like, no, make this rewarding for her, you know, <laughs> like what's going to happen now. And the way you wrote about your mom when her health was starting to decline that weekend where you were out of town on, I think fire Island or something, you came mm -hmm. back and she was, she had been on the floor for 24 hours and you had to get her back into bed with all the details around that moment where that was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, uh, I think that's part of the story that I hope will be helpful to other people is that no matter what the circumstances are, elder care is challenging, right? We mm -hmm. live in a country where it is, you know, ruinously expensive and the system can be Kafkaesque and it is just really challenging to get good care for someone who is, in those last years of their lives. And then you throw these you know, complicating factors into it and it can be dramatic and difficult. It's also hard when you, when you have such a complicated relationship and then all of a sudden they become you know, needy, right? It's mm -hmm. such a power shift, right? Yeah. And you have to like, in that moment decide like, okay, am I stepping up mm -hmm. or not? And how does that make me feel? And can I forgive all of the stuff or I'm projecting or whatever, but. No, absolutely. Can I forgive and how does it affect my own family? Right? Mm -hmm. Because when I when I started talking to some of the social workers, there was always an assumption that she would come to live with me if her housing situation didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But my mother could be quite violent even in her later years. And at the time I had a one and a half and a two and a half year old. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to picture what our lives would look like if I could never leave them alone mm -hmm. with her or when she was awake. And ultimately my husband and I decided that, that was not an option. And I don't know if that was the right decision. I don't think I'll ever know. And honestly, if you gave me those years back to do again, I would probably make a different decision about every single thing. And half really? of them would still be wrong. Yeah, because there's, there's really no way to know if you did the right thing. That's the, the hard thing about elder care is that, you know, we, especially as, you know, busy, overachieving people, we always think there's the right answer, right? There's the the good thing to do. And if we just hire the right lawyer or tick off the right box on the to-do list, we can make the right decision. But with these circumstances, there is no right decision. There's just the least worst. And mm -hmm. it's figuring out how to identify the least worst. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I still, I, I mean, look, I'm in no position to judge, but I still think, you know, your obligation becomes to your kids and any scenes, I mean, you wrote so much in the book about the, the really scary times you had with your mom and, the time where you know, there was a policeman 
there and she whacked your head against the door frame and they were just like, all right, have fun and left you guys alone. I mean, it's so devastating. And to even and have that as a possibility around these creatures who also depend on you. I mean, that's a yeah. risk. So it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that was something I, I tried to do in the book was to sort of paint the whole picture of someone who is living with and struggling with mental illness, because my mother could be very, very violent and very living with her could be difficult, as you have just noted. But she was also really brilliant and really funny. And she gave me a lot as a parent. And she really tried the very best she could. It's just that her very best was not great. And she didn't have any resources to be a better parent. And so I, I tried to build a story around her to, to really show all of the sides of her. You know, she wasn't a villain. There was no mustache twil twirling, no like hand steepling a la Mr. Burns. She was just a person who didn't have the ability to do what the world had given her. And I didn't mean to suggest she was like a bad person. Oh, no, no, that's not, not how that came across. Not at all. No, I feel like, you know, and I don't want to give things away in the book, but like the the scene where you realized why she had reacted so strongly when she caught you at home with a boy when you should have been at school mm -hmm. and you finally understood why that was such a trigger to her. It's such a gracious act. And then it helps the reader understand things, too. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I feel like you did a very good job at the whole picture of her. Thank you. <laughs> That's my hope. Which is not easy when it's a mom with like 18 million experiences you have with her. I mean, was it hard? What did you decide not to include? Were there things that were too, or, or was most of, the, most of the scenes you wanted, did you keep end up keeping in about her? So I, th I think I kept in as much as I could. I wish I had known more about her life that I could have included about her young life. But the only living person as I was writing who had known her at that age was her brother who was suffering with a brain tumor and actually died a few months ago. Um, and so those stories were not really available to us anymore. And that's something I thought about a lot as writing when I was writing the book because the history she gave me was not always true. And that's that's one of the reasons we don't know about history is because it's misrepresented to us. But a lot of it is also just gone, mm -hmm. right? If you if you don't have a memoirist in the family, if uh, <laughs> uh, these stories can just disappear as as people pass on from the earth. One scene that I originally tried to write about and ultimately could not, was that in my mid-20s, she came to me and said, I am going to be evicted. I have run out of money. You need to move in with me so that I can, you know, stay in the apartment. And I did move in with her and lived in her living room for about two years. And my mental health really took a pretty hard crack during that time. And after about two years, I finally said, I have to prioritize this, even if this does turn out badly for her. And I, and I left. And I found out later that that had been not true, that she was she was fine for the rent and she had just wanted to keep me closer to her. And so when I think back on that time, I first of all, I think of my mid 20s self so like falling to pieces and also think of how I'm still pretty angry that that happened. And I was just not up to the task of relating that with any kind of sensitivity or objectivity at this stage. Wow, that's very interesting. I feel like you you provided a foil for your relationship with your ex-girlfriend, Laura, and her mom, and how enmeshed that their relationship was. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about that and even how you processed watching that like codependency play out in real life. Yeah, so my ex, the woman I was with for about eight years, and she, her parents were divorced, her, her father was living, but she and her mother were very close. And at first, I think I understood that to be the sort of perfect relationship. You know, they call each other in time is good and bad and, and all of that. Uh, but as 
as time went by and I saw that, you know, whenever Laura would get off the phone with her, like sometimes she would cry because her mother had said something sort of kindly cutting to her and that she would be afraid to make certain moves in her life without her mother's approval, although she was, you know, well into her 30s at the time. I realized that there are just, there are a lot of ways to have a difficult parent-child relationship. They're all complicated, right? The, the world is not hurting for the stories of complicated parent-child relationships. And so that sort of made an interesting contrast to me, you know, the ways in which these relationships were not what we might consider ideal, but in very different ways. Interesting. Yeah, it's always good to, to see what everybody else is dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Another part of the book that I personally loved so much was your experience in publishing and how, you know, how you started out and even the, the big room or closet, you call it, where you got to get all the books and how you navigated your way through the industry and science fiction and your Midwestern experience and just that whole storyline. How do you feel about being on this side now, having worked on that side and like what new perspectives do you have or, you know, what did you take with you the most? Oh my gosh, so many new perspectives. So I was in publishing for many, many years as an editor. And from there, I went to BarnesandNoble.com and Amazon. And so I've been on now the editorial side, the retail side, and now the author side. Wait, wait, tell, wait slow that down because I find this yeah. so interesting. T explain more like where you started, like what your different things were and when you switched different sides of the business. Yeah, so I did a couple of tours of duty at Random House and one at Penguin <laughs> when they were different companies. They are now under one. And I was a development and acquisitions editor, which means that you buy books or rather buy the license to publish books from authors through their literary agents, work on the book with them, and then publish them. And I mostly did genre. I started in romance and then went to science fiction. And I think that was helpful in publishing a book of my own because I just sort of had a shortcut to, you know, the lingo and the things about publishing that are maybe a little bit weird because I already understood them and didn't have to be introduced to these concepts. But mostly now, I just hope that I was kind enough to my authors the week of publication because I just <laughs> did not realize how nerve-wracking it is to be on the other side. 
And so that has been, I'm, I'm looking back on that with, with great hope that I was sufficiently supportive of my authors. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you did the Penguin Random House and then what made you go to Barnes and Noble and Amazon and what, how did you shift like the job functions and everything? And what did... Yeah. So I left Random House in January 2009 because the economy had crashed pretty dramatically, as you may recall. And there was just a, a mass layoff across Random House. That was the day we discovered who kept a bottle in their desk. Most mm. people turned out. <laughs> and so, you know, we sort of all, all of us who'd been laid off sort of scattered into the world, figuring out what to do next, because we had this very specific skill set. And we're trying to figure out what it transferred to. So I freelanced for a while and I worked for a startup that did ebooks for the iPhone. This was before the Apple store. And it was a, it was like seven engineers and me in a single room next to a court stenography school, which I have to admit, I did not realize was still a thing. <laughs> But that was an amazing experience. I'd never worked. That would actually be really fun to take that class to learn how to do that. Like I would be interested in that. I always like, how do they do that? They just like pound away and it's like, you know. Yeah. There's this little machine that about the size of a terrier that you, that like a wheelie thing that you draw behind you. I don't know. It was a, I I wish I'd had a good more time to chat with those people. But from there, I went to barnesandnoble.com to do digital strategy. And from there, Amazon to do audiobooks. Wow. But then when were you an educational consultant? Because that you listed that somewhere on some website. It said that. And I was like, when did that happen? So I work for an educational nonprofit now. Educational Um, nonprofit. Sorry. Okay. Yes. So when we moved to D.C., my husband got his dream job here as a tax attorney for the DOJ, which I'm assured is more interesting than it sounds because it would kind (laughs) of have to be. (laughs) And so I looked around at D.C. and there is no publishing in D.C. It's still a very, as you know very well, a New York-centered industry. And was lucky to start working for a nonprofit here, making applications and websites and all of the stuff we work with teachers. Very cool. Love it. I just read a children's book about, oh, you know what it was? It's called, it's by James Patterson. It's one of his middle grade books. Mm -hmm. It's called Laugh Out Loud. And in it, the parents of Jimmy are tax attorneys. (laughs) Like one's a tax attorney and one is a tax something else. And mm-hmm. so all the jokes are about April 15th and all this stuff. Anyway, you should get it for him. He might yeah, find, find it amazing. Will. But anyway, I, definitely I think it's called Laugh Out Loud. Anyway, I'm reading it to my kids. That's excellent. You also go, I mean, there's so much in the story. You didn't want to have kids for a long time. You were afraid you would mother in the same way or what if that happened to you? And you just like didn't like kids particularly. And, you know, people assured you you would like your own kids, but you weren't so sure about that, which I know a lot of people have been in that same position. Talk to me about that decision-making process process and now being the mom of two kids. Yeah. So I was never a particularly maternal person and did, it just was not in my life plan, but my husband really, really wanted kids. And at the time that he and I were dating, everything else in my life had sort of gone kerplunk, right? I was, uh, things were not going well at my job. I had not long before gotten out of this long relationship, but just moved. I just had major surgery. It was just everything at once. And I thought, well, you know, my previous plan didn't work out so hot. So maybe it's time to start thinking about a different plan. And having kids is something a lot of people do. It's not crazy. It's not like terraforming Mars, right? This is, a, <laughs> this is a, an option. And I kind of thought, you know, I was in my late 30s at the time. I thought, we can give it a shot. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to go to great lengths. Long story short, I was five months pregnant to my wedding, which we were not expecting. <laughs> and then my second came very soon after that. And it has been, I mean, it's a lot. 
It's a lot. <laughs> you know what being a mom is like. It's, you know, I also, it was a couple of days after my second's birthday that my second child's second birthday that the pandemic began. So just as we were getting out of that stage of parenting where you can't leave the house because your kids are young, we couldn't leave the house because there was a global pandemic. So it was just a very sort of, you know, all of the isolation of early motherhood really spun out longer than you would expect. But my kids are great. It turns out I'm not my mother, which is helpful. And so far, count of serial killers in my household is zero. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> no promises for later, but we seem to be doing okay so far. Oh my gosh. You know, it's so funny. I mean, my kids, my youngest now is seven. So at the start of the pandemic, he was, you know, five. He was finishing preschool. But I remember thinking, well, at least my kids aren't like two. <laughs> anyway, I know that's a terrible thing to say. No, I'm like, no. I, I was like, I don't know if I would survive if I still had like, I don't know if I could have done it if I had just tiny kids at home. Like, I, I don't, not that I didn't almost lose my mind on a daily basis during that period of time, I'm but sure. maybe sure. it would have been worse or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, there was no good situation, right? Nobody was like, I know, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I don't know. I find it easier as they get older, even though I love the, like the baby stage and all that yumminess. Mm -hmm. And I miss that a lot. At least they can like get themselves dressed. Yes. Miracle. I'm looking forward to being a grandparent of the babies in the cute stage, right? Because yes. then they'll be adorable, but then you can give them back. Yeah. I'm excited for that too. I have, I think we both have a long ways to go. <laughs> At this point, I'm like, I hope I live long enough to be a grandmother. I mean, I'm such an old mom from my littlest guy, you know, it's like, <laughs> like, we'll see. I'll be like hobbling, <laughs> hobbling along. So what has been the effect? This memoir has been out now for what, two months or so. What, how has this affected your life? It got such amazing reception, which I'm not surprised about, but Apple best books of the month and just recommend it everywhere in New York Times, like every everywhere by everyone. Now what? Like, how did it make you feel? Where do you go from here? Yeah, thank you. I've been so stunned by the reaction and so grateful for it. You know, because publishing moves so slowly, I sold the book a year and a half before it came out. And so that sort of lulled me into a false sense of security because I was out there in the world, like someday my book will be published and people will know the story. Tra la la, this will happen sometime. And then one day, suddenly, a lot of people had read it. And so there were sort of the two buckets there, right? There were the strangers on the internet who had read it. And then there were the people in my life who had read it. And I think the latter was even a little bit weirder because a lot of these were things that I sort of alluded to with my with my friends and because they're hard to talk about. Mm -hmm. First of all, you just don't want to be the person bringing, you know, some of these challenging issues to the party, right? It's not fun. It's not a fun conversation. I'm really selling the book here, aren't I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you are, though. You're saying you wrote what you were too afraid to say, which just makes it more enticing. So, <laughs> yeah. And so I think it filled in a lot of the pieces for the people around me. But we had, you know, a small book launch in my in my backyard after this started right after the book came out and a neighbor sort of sidled up to me and said, so how does it feel to know you took off your clothes and got naked in front of the world? And I was like, yeah, that's actually exactly, exactly how it feels. And the, I, I think the most gratifying part of the reception has been people reaching out to me who've been in similar situations and similarly thought they were the only one. Mm -hmm. So uh, my mother had a diagnosis of among other things, borderline personality disorder and because one of the, char the characterizing features of it is this fear of abandonment, it tends to have a great effect on parent-child relationships because there's this, you know, a desire for a closeness that that goes beyond the bounds of what most of what characterizes most parent-child relationships. And so, a lot of people who'd been in this situation wrote to me and said, "Oh my God, my mother did the same thing. I felt the same way. I've never talked to anybody about this." And 
you know, don't tell my publisher I said this, but if I never sell another copy, that will have been, will already make me feel like I did what I set out to do. Because when I, when I had my first child, I looked around in the world and thought like, how do I learn how to do this? How do I learn how to mother when my own experience was so chaotic? And I couldn't really find anything. And, you know, there's plenty of books, as I said earlier, about difficult mother-child relationships, but I couldn't find one that then took it to the next generation. Like, how do you not pass it down? Mm-hmm. And so I, I tried to write what I couldn't find to read. That's amazing. I mean, that's what they say to do, right? <laughs> write yeah. the book you want to read and, <laughs> and all of that. And are you working on another project? or I you... am. I finished a novel. And novels are hard, it turns out, because in fiction, you have to make up the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> With a memoir, you just look at your life and think what's interesting. But we'll see if it's any good and if it, uh, if it actually makes it onto shelves. But I'm, I'm pretty pleased to have finished a second book because that really makes me think I can write a third. That's awesome. That's very exciting. Amazing. So what advice would you have for aspiring authors? You know, I'm certainly not the first person to have said this, but I really think it is about butt in the chair. I had a word count goal for myself for those three days a week, and I had to finish those words before I, you know, finished my lunch, went to my next meeting, went to the bathroom. And after you've had two kids, that is quite... (laughs) And, you know, a lot of, I would sit down to write my 500 words and sometimes they were terrible. A lot of the times they were terrible, but editing is so much easier than writing to my mind. So once you get it on the page, you have something you can work with. It's not that, you know, existential drama of the blank page and the self-doubt of I can never fill this. Uh, If you can't get up until you finish the 500 words, you will put something on there. That is the advice I would give. I love that. I'm interested how you said it a minute ago, like, don't tell my publisher about selling more copies. <laughs> Have you, do you feel though, and this is just something I've sort of been experiencing through no one's fault, perhaps just my own, but that once the book comes out, like there's, there is all this focus on the numbers that like you didn't necessarily want to be focusing on, but it just like happens because <laughs> they're like out there and then you get sucked into it. I don't know. Do you feel like that happened to you or not really? I am trying not to get sucked into the numbers because I remember doing that as an editor. Mm -hmm. And so sort of now in my head, I think I I have the most amazing editor in the world. And I think like that is her job to worry about. It is my job to be out there promoting. I'm trying to compartmentalize who deals with what at this stage in the publication. That's very smart. Actually, I met your editor, Serena, right? Serena. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. And Pat Eisman. And I love the the Holt crew. They're so nice. They are a dream maker team. They're so incredible. Amazing. Well, this is all really exciting. Your book was really great. I I mean, Thank I hope you you're so really much. proud of it and that you feel some sort of, I don't know, closure or peace with your past experience as a result and that it was all worth it to you. Do you feel like that? I definitely do. It, it definitely gave me some closure in, you know, over the course of writing the book was some of this discovery about my father. You know, some of it was happening simultaneously. And so that was really, really satisfying. And again, just hearing from other people with similar situations, I think as great it was, they're telling me how great it was for them to see themselves reflected. It is just for great as great for me to hear myself reflected in them. So I think with, you know, with, with a lot of these situations, sort of the magic factor in making you whole about it is community and is about understanding and empathy. And I think we're all getting there. And the more honestly we can talk about it, the better. I totally agree. And by the way, I loved that you shared on Instagram the picture of your dad. Oh my gosh. I could not believe it. He was such a looker, right? Such a, I, I really wish I had gotten to know him. Wow. 
but I, I had never, so the, the picture you're referencing is one that someone sent me just since the book came out. I had maybe six or eight pictures of him before. He died at 28, so the pictures were all sort of late high school through mid-20s. But this picture of when he was 12 years old, and really, I mean, we we are identical, looking the same weird dimple, the same weird cowlick. It is so strange when you have not seen your face reflected in someone else to suddenly see that. Oh my gosh. I haven't listened to your episode of Family Secrets with Danny mm. Shapiro, but I really want to. I adore her and I can't wait to hear the two of you talk, but she's anyway. a force. <laughs> All right. Well, Liz, thank you so much. This has been great. And thank you um, so much. Thank you. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Zibby. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.